Well, good morning, beloved. It's good to be together. Uh, good to be singing God's praises and praying to Him. Hope you've been encouraged so far uh, in the worship together. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We're going to finish out Mark chapter 1 this morning in uh, our sermon series called Follow Me, Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. If you're new to the Bible, when I say the Gospel of Mark, I'm referring to one of the first four books in the Bible. Those first four books of the New Testament, excuse me, those first four books in the New Testament uh, are really uh, stories, biographies of Jesus' life. Uh, and they all have a similar kind of outline to them. They tell us a lot about his early ministry, the early chapters. And then uh, they slow down and they give us a very detailed account of the events leading up to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Those are called the passion sections of the narrative. Right now we're in the beginning of Mark's gospel. We're looking at the beginning of Jesus' ministry uh, to the people of his day. Uh, and as we look there, we're beginning to learn what the Messiah is like. We're beginning to learn what the Son of God is like. We're beginning to hear the good news of the kingdom and to see the power of the kingdom demonstrated in Jesus' ministry and in the effects that it has on the people who come into contact with him. And this morning there's a question that really is raised for us by this text. And that question, we might put it like this, how would you define kingdom success? How would you define kingdom success? This is an important question because honestly, more people fail because of success than they do failure. Success is often a bigger trial to us, a bigger test of our character. We can be ruined by fame more quickly than we can be ruined by anonymity. If we equate success with things like bigger numbers, more influence, more name recognition, then when numbers decrease, influence wanes, and people no longer know our names, well then, have we become failures because those things have gone away? Have we spent our lives chasing a ghost, a white whale that threatens to devour us? I don't know if you've thought much about what success means. I know that you've thought about success. But I don't know that you've thought about what it means. Whether you're using the correct measure of success. Whether you're saying no to the right things and yes to the wrong things. Whether you have a definition of success that requires crowds. Or one that serves you just as well when you're all alone whether the meaning of success will serve you in desolate places or whether or not, again, you need the applause of co-workers, families, and friends. How would you define kingdom success? And what is that definition of success doing to your soul? How is it impacting your religious worship? your fellowship with God, your priorities in life and ministry. Those are the things we want to come to consider as we look at Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 45. And if we were putting this in sort of one main point, you, you might put it this way, that, that to live and minister successfully, 
to live and minister successfully from the kingdom's perspective, we need to actually follow Jesus into desolate places to be with God and away from the crowds. We need to follow Jesus into desolate places in order to be with God and away from the crowds. That's a strategy that's key to success in God's sight. Now I'm going to unpack that in four motions this morning, four points this morning. Uh, our text actually has a certain kind of uh, arc to it. We begin in a desolate place, and then Jesus goes out to minister. And then he ministers to a, a, a leper uh, in a very public place, but then he goes back to the desolate place. Right. So point number one is, Jesus seeks the desolate place to meet with God. Jesus seeks the desolate place to meet with God. That's in verses 35 and 37. Point number two, in the desolate place with God, Jesus finds clear purpose. Jesus finds clear purpose. We see that in verses 38 and 39. And from the desolate place with God, Jesus emerges with a tender heart. Jesus emerges with a tender heart, verses 40 to 42. And then finally, Jesus returns to the desolate place to avoid the crowds. He goes back to the desolate place to get away from the people, verses 43 to 45. Look with me as we read Mark chapter 1. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it, and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. That's the Lord's word. Notice the first thing. Jesus seeks the desolate place in order to meet with God. Now remember the context of our, of our scripture passage for this morning. In verses 32 and 34, Jesus and the disciples had just finished a kind of preaching tour. They come back to a town called Capernaum, and that's where uh, Peter lived. They go to Peter's house, that's where they're staying. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, and then that evening, the text says, that uh, verse 33, the whole city gathered at Peter's door. And, and that evening, and we assume into the night, Jesus was healing people in the crowds, casting out demons and, and, and curing various sicknesses and diseases. And not nearly everyone would say, that Jesus at this point was wildly successful, that he was experiencing a, a kind of spike in kingdom success. 
So verse 35 opens the, the morning after all of that, and it says that Jesus, rising very early in the morning when it was still dark. Now some people think very early in the morning is like 10 a.m., uh, but, but God wants to care for you, wants to make things clear to you, and so he adds there that little phrase, while it was still dark. The night is still. Roosters have not began to crow to welcome the morning dawn. People have not yet yawned themselves out of last night's sleep. No critters are crawling. Nothing's stirring. The day's activities have not began to steal people's peace. It's then that the S-O-N rises before the S-U-N. He quietly goes out to a desolate place. He sneaks away. Now, a desolate place is a place where there's like nothing. It's what the word desolate means, empty. It's like a desert or a rocky wilderness. There, there are no plants there, no watering holes. Um, there are definitely no people. And so Jesus leaves the crowds and he seeks out a place where he's completely alone. Verse 35 says, uh, he went there, notice, to pray. He goes there to be alone with God. The Lord wants to talk to his Father in heaven without distraction. Now how often do you and I find it difficult to pray because we are surrounded with distractions? But Jesus pulls away from it all in order to be with God. See, to Jesus, prayer alone with God is greater than all the attention of men combined. So, Verses 36 and 37 tell us that Peter and the boys come looking for, for Jesus. Verse 36 says, they searched for him. Slow down and consider those words for a moment. They searched for him. Why did they have to search for him? Apparently, Jesus did not want to be easily found. He didn't leave Peter a note with his location. Uh, he didn't shake and wake Peter and tell the, the guys to come along with him. I, I imagine that Peter and the boys are, are a little bit like um, trackers or scouts. They're looking for footprints. Where did he go? Oh, there's a broken branch. He went that way and, and they're trying to track him down. Jesus wanted it to be difficult for him to be found. He wanted to be alone with God. We'll come back to that in a moment. But notice what Peter says when they finally find Jesus. Everyone is looking for you. Now, based on that question, what do you think is Peter's goal in seeking Jesus? How do you think Peter is defining kingdom success? Well, the disciples did not come out to Jesus in the wilderness, in the desolate place. They didn't go find him there in order to serve him. They didn't go find Jesus in order to help him. They didn't go there to shield Jesus from the crowd. They seem to want Jesus with the crowd. They want Jesus to serve the crowd. They seem to think that the needs of the crowd, which are very real needs, are the most important thing. And maybe they're thinking, don't keep the people waiting. Give them, give them what they want. They, they seem, the disciples, to represent the interests of the crowds not the interests of God the Father or God the Son. Perhaps they even think that popularity and demand mean that God's work is back at Peter's house. 
They're out here in this desolate place all alone. Beloved, God's best work in us and through us often happens when He is alone with just us. Everyone is looking for you, the disciples say. But that's the problem. The demands are too early, they are too many, they are too constant. From the time the people woke up, they started looking for Jesus to place demands on him. Now, when you think about it, our lives can be a lot like that too, can't they? I mean, you mothers feel like you can't find a spare moment to use the bathroom without a little hand reaching under the door or somebody uh, in another room calling, Mommy! And you teachers... You do more than write lesson plans. You also serve as counselors and mentors, as coaches and even surrogate parents, always facing the many demands of, of students, young people. And we pastors face the real needs of dozens or hundreds of people all at once. And a lot of us as pastors feel like uh, everybody is looking for us. We live in a world of constant demand, don't we? Now, the mistake that we make is trying to be there for everybody all the time. And there's a reason we make that mistake. Two of them, really. First, we underestimate our need for God to give us wisdom and strength to face the needs of those around us. We don't know how much we need God. At least we act like we don't know. Second, we like being needed. See, the truth is, even though we complain, we want to be wanted. We want to be in demand. We relish it. It's a kind of fame. I mean, popularity is a heck of a drug. There are, there are advantages that come from it, uh, from fame and popularity, from being needed. So, so even though we, we can't keep up with his demands, we're, we're drawn to notoriety. We're drawn to popularity. We're drawn to being needed, to codependency. That feels like success to us. Something in us wants to be discovered, not hidden. The desolate places we choose aren't so desolate. They're populated. So we want to be found. We want to be famous. We want to be popular. We want to be known. We want to be needed. So we keep trying to meet all the needs around us all the time. We spend more time with the crowds and less time with God, and we call it ministry. But take another look at Jesus out there in the desolate place. Jesus does not make the mistake of chasing fame and chasing popularity. He gets up early before the demands start. He sneaks away to a desolate place where people have to search for him. And once there, Jesus does the most necessary thing of all. He prays to God. Why? Why is he making it hard for him to be found? I like the way Zach Eswine puts it. It says very simply, Jesus is fame shy. He's fame shy shy. He looks to avoid worldly popularity and worldly fame. And this simple scene then really hints at three profound spiritual problems that we face as Christians and as, as, as non-Christians as well. Number one, the tyranny of the needy and the urgent. Number two, the temptation of fame and the discipleship of celebrity. 
And number three, the misguided suggestions of friends about what's important. The desolate place with God in prayer helps us to discern and to defeat all these temptations. I mean, beloved, we, we should be people who refuse to let people reach us with needs before we reach God with prayer. In the desolate place with God in prayer, we come to understand what's most important instead of bouncing from urgent thing to urgent thing. In prayer, we come to understand the, the deepest needs among us instead of responding to what people say they need. It's not always the same thing. In a desolate place with God away from the crowds, we begin to recognize popularity and celebrity um, for the people-pleasing sham that it is. The crowds are fickle. They go away. There will be some new hot thing next month so that what was popular today is stale in a week. Success is not measured by crowds. In fact, always playing to the crowds will often keep us from our genuine purpose. And in the desolate place with God in prayer, we can hear our friends better too. We can spot things in their well-meaning counsel that might not be God's agenda. We can see when our friends are themselves too concerned with the crowds. We can see when our friends, having not prayed themselves, might be driven too much by people-pleasing, by this world, rather than the world to come. And when we're out there in that desolate place in prayer with God, we can evaluate our friends' advice against the, the Scripture, against the truth of God's Word. But defeating these temptations, escaping a world full of applause, only happens if we have the habit of sometimes going to the desolate places to pray without distraction. See, that's where we get our strength for life and ministry. We were never meant to live always in the spotlight. We are meant to repent for ever trying. Which brings us to our second observation. Notice that it's in the desolate place with God that Jesus finds clear purpose. Verses 38 and 39. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So what's the result of Jesus' time alone in prayer with God? Well, there are two results. And the first one we see here, Jesus finds clear purpose. Notice there, he says in verse 38, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. He was coming out to pray, to seek purpose. And he's found that purpose, he's found that reminder in prayer that he has been sent into the world to gather his people into a kingdom. And that means not setting up a preaching point at Peter's house. That means traveling from town to town to gather those who are scattered. And Jesus' response in verse 38 is amazing. It implies that the crowds and the miracles at Peter's house do not equal God's work or priority for that day. Peter and the disciples want to go back to the crowds. Jesus wants to go to those who have not yet been reached. He wants to go to the next towns. 
See, praying to God clarifies that there are other people in need of the gospel and in need of the kingdom. There are other people to be evangelized and set free from demons. The mission is to keep the gospel of the kingdom spreading, to, to send it out, not to bottle it up. And the Lord says, for that is why I came out. He finds clear purpose in that desolate time in prayer with God. Verse 39 describes Jesus' ministry as he traveled from town to town. He preached and he cast out demons. Those are sort of the two basic things that he did. Now Mark only uses one sentence to summarize uh, Jesus' ministry strategy there, but it's, it's really in that one sentence uh, we get a sense of the demanding nature of this ministry. It was quite demanding. Traveling by foot from town to town is demanding. Preaching is demanding. Preaching in their synagogues where many do not believe you and many will come to oppose you, that too was demanding. The spiritual warfare of casting out demons, that's demanding. In physical, social, and spiritual ways, the Lord's work of spreading the good news of the kingdom was exacting a physical cost, a physical and a spiritual toll on him. And now we see why. That time in prayer alone was so vital and necessary. If the Son of God needed to get alone with God early to pray in order to prepare for His work, how much more do we need to get alone with God early to pray in order to prepare, with God, prepare for what God has for us? Jesus seeks the desolate places in order to prepare for demanding public ministry. We get this backwards, don't we? We seek the public places with people and fear the desolate places alone with God. So we're often fake in public and a mess in private. But Jesus instead nurtures his relationship with God in private so that he can effectively deal with the mess of ministry in public, the crowds and all of their needs. See, if we spend our time with crowds feeding our popularity lusts, then we will overlook the so-called insignificant people and places. But, but Jesus leaves the crowd to seek the easily forgotten. The next town away from the public eye may be God's assignment for us, just as it was for Jesus. I wonder if you've thought about that. What might God sending us to the next town mean? Perhaps a move to Anacostia or Southeast, away from some other more popular, desirous place to live? Perhaps joining Joshua and the church plant in Congress Heights? Or perhaps relocating to an entirely new country and culture and people group in order to serve the Lord in international missions? Where would a mind focused on God's plan to evangelize the world take you? Sometimes finding purpose requires getting alone and quiet to pray. And so the question becomes, is there enough quiet? Is there enough solitude? Is there enough prayer for you and I to stay focused on God's mission? So before we try to define a purpose or a calling, we need to get alone with God. We often lack purpose because we lack prayer. 
And Jesus shows us a better way. Forget the crowd and outward success. Withdraw with God and receive purpose. And we'll see the other thing that results from his time of prayer uh, in, in a desolate place. Uh, point number three, from the desolate place with God, Jesus emerges now with a tender heart. He emerges with a tender heart. So by getting away from the crowd, Jesus develops compassion. Now notice verses 40 to 42 here. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. <laughs> I am so unlike Jesus. If I spend too much time with people without spending much time with God, then I usually get irritated with people. My flesh gets involved. My heart withdraws and hardens. I think more about my own convenience and my own desires than I do the, the actual needs of others. Beloved, I know from my own life that time away from God is time away from love. But notice how Jesus is described in these verses. He is, quote, moved with pity. Now, in the Hebrew mind, there is not a sharp distinction between emotion and action. We, in, in sort of the English and the Western mind, we, we sort of distinguish those things. But uh, among the ancient Hebrews, um, there's not that sharp distinction. So, so pity does not only mean uh, to feel sympathy for someone. It also means to take action to relieve suffering or need. So something deep in Jesus' inner being, in, in, the old, in the King James language, in his bowels, <coughs> something deep in the Lord's inner being is, is stirred up with compassion and moves Jesus to act. But not only is Jesus moved emotionally with pity, notice now, he's moved to touch the leper. Jesus could have healed the leper without touching him. But there's something deep and profound about this sacred touch, this holy touch. Leviticus chapter 13 is an entire chapter that, that records God's law on how to deal with people who have a leprous skin disease. Uh, and in that, in that law, Israel is told that such a person is to be regarded as unclean. And the consequence of them being unclean is that several things have to happen. They have to be separated from Israel, separated from the community. They can't participate in the worship of the community. Um, their clothing and things, um, once the leprosy is over, has to be burned. Um, because they're separated from the community, they can't go to work, they can't be with their family, all those kinds of things. Anybody who touches them is regarded as unclean. Any clothing that touches them is regarded as unclean. Um, to be a leper is to be an outcast, a social reject, a pariah that no one would dare to have anything to do with. That's this man. As long as he's had this leprosy, he has been unclean and untouchable. And everybody around him thinks that to touch him would make them unclean. One scholar writes this, This is not simply the description of an illness. It is a sentence. 
the purpose of which was to protect the health of the community from a dreaded contagion. Lepers were victims of far more than the disease itself. The disease robbed them of their health, and the sentence imposed on them as a consequence robbed them of their name, occupation, habits, family, and fellowship, and worshiping community. To ensure against contact with society, lepers were required to make their appearance as repugnant as possible. Josephus speaks of the banishment of lepers as those, quote, in no way differing from a corpse. To be a leper was to be as good as dead and untouchable. But Jesus embodies the revelation of the compassion of God. He is the Messiah who identifies with his people and relieves their suffering. So Jesus now stretches out his hands, and you can imagine everyone in the crowd shrinking back in horror, thinking to themselves, no, don't touch him. And he touches the man with a holy touch. And here's the stunning thing that Mark wants us to see, that God wants us to see. Instead of becoming unclean like the leper, the leper becomes clean like Jesus. In the Old Testament, the priests were powerless to remove the leprosy. They could identify it, but they couldn't cure it. In the Old Testament, the law was powerless to cure the leprosy. It could tell you what to do with the clothing or the furniture or with the person, but it did not remove the leprosy. But now look at Jesus. With a word, I will be clean, and a touch of his hand, Jesus has a power that the law and the Old Testament priests did not have. He has the power to make what was unclean, clean. And so he does with this leper. He touches him. And in touching him affirms his embodiment, affirms his humanity. And he speaks and he heals him. And in healing him, reveals his deity, reveals that he is the Messiah. Verse 42 says, Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Now, beloved, what Jesus does with this man with leprosy is what Jesus does with sinners. He removes what makes us unclean. Our sin makes us unclean before God. It defiles us before God. And because of our sin, we are cast off. We are cast away from God, separated from his presence, separated from his love, separated from social or, or, or fellowship with him. We are dead spiritually. But Jesus comes alone and he, he clothes himself in our humanity. He enters the world as we are reading about here and he interacts with sinners. He interacts with the disease. He interacts with the demon possessed and he cleanses and forgives and he casts out demons and he's still cleansing and he's still forgiving and he's still making us new. Jesus comes into the world and he, in our flesh, 
dies on the cross for our sins. Not for sins that he had committed, but sins that we had committed. Sins that made us unclean. And he's buried for three days, and three days later, he is raised from the grave. And that resurrection demonstrates he's defeated the grave, he's defeated death, he's defeated sin, he's defeated the stain of sin. And now God calls us to turn from our sins, to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as our God and our Savior. And the promise of the gospel is everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved shall be made clean, shall be brought back from spiritual death to spiritual life, all through faith in Jesus, through, through trusting him to rescue us from our sins and to make us clean with God. And Jesus is still doing that, beloved. He's doing that even now, right now, this moment, as, as people turn from their sin and put their faith in him, resurrections are happening, cleansings are happening, lepers are being cured. Sin is being removed and righteousness is being given through faith in him. Jesus is this same Messiah coming to outcasts and bringing us home to God our Father. My friend, that can be you this morning, if it's not you already. You can be made clean before God. You can have your sins all taken away and paid for so that you never need to fear judgment for them again. You can have a brand new life. You can be born again, to use the language of the Bible. This was Jesus' purpose. This is why he came. This is why he went from town to town. This is why he now sends preachers to, to preach this same message so that you and I can be rescued from God's judgment, be made new, be brought home, we brought back to God in love and fellowship. For that to happen, beloved, you must repent of your sins. That is, turn away from them, and you must put your faith in Jesus Christ as your God and Savior. Do that this morning. It's the most important thing for you to do. It is the beginning and the crown of kingdom success that you trust the Savior that God has sent to rescue you from sin. Do it now. Tomorrow's not promised. Believe on Jesus. So, beloved, we should come to our fourth observation here. Jesus returns to the desolate place to avoid the crowds. Look with me in verses 43 and 44. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Notice Jesus was stern about it. It's not often that we see Jesus being stern with the crowd. Normally his, his sternness is reserved for religious hypocrites, the leaders of the day. But, but he speaks to this man who is just healed from leprosy and, and he's not playing around. He's being very serious. He directly tells this man, keep your mouth shut and go to the priest and obey God's command. Make the offering you're supposed to make. And Jesus does this for a couple of reasons. Number one, he was not looking for crowds because the crowds got in the way of his completing his purpose. Number two, he wanted the religious leaders to have proof that the Messiah had come. That's why he sends them to the priest to, to make the offerings. And, and number three, he wanted this man to be affirmed as clean. So Jesus was not seeking worldly attention. Jesus didn't want to be a conference speaker. 
Jesus didn't want a big book contract. Jesus didn't want to be on somebody's podcast or television show. The Lord could have had the equivalent of all those things in his day. In fact, if he had wanted in God's wisdom, he could have come today where everybody has those things. But I suspect that if Jesus were on earth today carrying out this part of his ministry, I suspect he would avoid all of those things for the sake of being alone with his father and carrying out his father's business. He wouldn't let his right hand know what his left hand was doing. He would not do his righteous deeds before crowds with, with trumpets and robes. He would not encourage us to unnecessary busyness. He would say to all of us Marthas, you, you need to be Marys. You need to choose the, the greater portion and to sit at the Lord's feet. Jesus would not be thirsting and hungering for the applause and the approval of men. And it's to avoid in part, to avoid worldly popularity, that, that Jesus tells this man sternly, don't tell anybody. But you know what? Sometimes we can't hold water, can we? First thing this man did was to go out and talk freely about it and to spread the news. I mean, he, he's just taking it to everybody that he can tell. And you can understand why. If you've been a leper cut off from everybody, everybody treats you as socially dead, and now you've been cleansed, you've been healed, and the one thing you can do is actually be with people again? I mean, imagine when this pandemic is over and we can be with people again. We're going to sort of throw ourselves into conversation, throw ourselves into gatherings uh, because we've been set free from this thing that has isolated us. And so that man does that here in verse 45. He goes and he, he tells everybody and their mama. But notice the result. Jesus was not then able to carry on his ministry purpose because the crowd became a distraction. Notice, Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. He wanted to go from town to town, but now it's got to the point he can't even enter town. So our text ends where it began. Jesus performs this miracle with the man with leprosy, but, but then he goes back, verse 45, to the desolate place. The crowds have to search for him again. The Lord who came to save the world decides to pull away from the world. And I think in that action there is a challenge for us Christians and Christian churches and church leaders. I think Zach Eswine puts the challenge very well in the form of these questions. Do I possess a stamina for going unnoticed? Can I handle being overlooked? Do I have a spirituality that equips me to do an unknown thing for God's glory? How does the fame, indifference of Jesus inform the way we go about growing our ministries or fashioning a life with Jesus? Are we willing to forgo what works in the world for what Jesus teaches us to trust? What Jesus teaches us to trust here is Him and the Father in prayer and the purposes of God in mission, evangelism, church planting. And what Jesus teaches us here is to do that largely from the desolate places. Not from the places of television cameras and 
crowds, not from the places of blog posts and podcasts, not from the places where everybody goes to be seen. He's not in the market for voyeurs. Jesus is in search of disciples. And he's not in the sort of market for worldly applause. He is ultimately looking for true worship. Those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And that can be faked in the crowds. But it's really cultivated and developed in the desolate places. When we have some experiences of being alone with God. Away from everybody else. Where we can really hear him. And really be shaped by him. And when we're shaped by him in these ways. These questions. They cease to be a challenge and they become an invitation to develop a kind of stamina for being unnoticed, to handle being overlooked, to cultivate a spirituality that equips us to do things for God that nobody will ever see or ever know, to be so indifferent to fame and applause that it frees us to shape our ministry strategy, not by the opinions of men, but, but really for an audience of one, for God himself. And that's the kind of covenant community we long for ARC to be. It's slick and hype and cool to be a church plant and to plant other churches. There are a whole bunch of books written about how you do it and, 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 and what draws people. You, you can draw a crowd and not be a church. That's what's happening in this text. And you can do marvelous things publicly and not have a real vital relationship with God. Jesus is showing us a way that undoes us in order to repair us and make us whole. He pulls himself away from the crowd in order so that he can pour himself into God. And we would be wise to follow him. We would be wise to develop a spirituality that looks like Jesus' spirituality. To develop an approach to life and an approach to ministry that's built upon well, fellowship with God. See, it's better to be alone with God in a desolate place than to be surrounded by people in cities. Kingdom success looks more like secret prayer than public miracles. In our day of do, 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 we need to take note of how Jesus left the urgent undone. Undone. So he could focus on the truly important. His aim was the spread of the message of the gospel. And a crowd was not necessary for that. In fact, a crowd was in the way. Crowds aren't necessary for us either. Only God. And while everyone was seeking Jesus, Jesus was seeking the Father. So this week, beloved, let us seek the Father. Let us seek God. We need to want to be wanted less and want to have God more. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your Son, the true Savior, the one Messiah, whom you sent into the world to gather us, Lord, from towns and hamlets and cities, to gather us to himself for the healing of our souls, and in your eternal kingdom, also the healing of our bodies. 
We praise you that you've given us a part in your kingdom. And we say, Lord, bring your kingdom quickly. Bring it quickly so that our warfare in this world, our distractions by this world, might be done away with and we might be consumed with your love and your glory. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray.